Preparation. Preparation is critical for success, and we understand this because it's critical in most areas of life. The importance of preparation in life and and for success should not be underrated. In fact, if you ask any athlete, if you ask any successful chef or musician or successful business person or mother for that matter, one of the things you'll hear right away is that one of the keys to their success was a life given over in many ways to preparation. The success of their tasks and their goals is so often linked to the preparation, the hard work that was put into getting ready for that task. And if you think of it from the opposite end, maybe you can think back to a time in your life where you had an opportunity to succeed at something and you failed. Maybe it was a test. Does that bring back some memories for you? Maybe it was some pursuit or some task that you were going after that you were unable to accomplish. And as you stop to reflect upon why that was the case, why didn't I succeed at this? Maybe you came to this conclusion in your mind. I lacked preparation. I wasn't prepared for that. How many times have I said that? Well, God has promised his church success. He has promised that the mission of the church will succeed. He has declared in Matthew 16, 18 that I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. That is a promise for success, that the mission of the church will go forward and will be accomplished. As we study through the book of Acts, and in particular the first two chapters of Acts, one of the things we see is Jesus called the church to get ready. He calls them to get ready because the promise is here. The promise of the, uh, all the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises are being realized in Jesus. And the promise that Jesus has declared to the church, their power source, the Holy Spirit, is about to arrive. And while they wait patiently for the gift of the Spirit of God, one of the things they are called to do is prepare. This is a time of preparation for the early church as they transition from the old covenant to the new covenant, to the age of the church, to the last days. So after Jesus ascends into the clouds and the disciples stand gazing up into the sky and the angels declare to them that this Savior, this Jesus whom you saw rise from this mountain into the cloud will come again in the same way that he left one day, They are sent back to Jerusalem to regroup and prepare for the coming promise of the Holy Spirit. And as they get ready, what we see here are three key steps of preparation that they take as they wait for the Spirit of God. And I want to begin by reading the first section of Scripture. So look down at me, Acts chapter 1. We're picking up the pace at verse 12. And I'll just read the first few verses here. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath's day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And notice this, in these da- those days, Peter stood among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 Here we get a snapshot of the early church, and one of the things we see as they prepare is they understand that this is a time to unite. 
This isn't a time for the church to be segregated or splintered or falling apart at the seams. Instead, they recognize that Jesus is calling them to band together, to stick together, understanding that there is power in numbers, that they are called to encourage each other as they wait patiently for the gift of the Spirit of God. And so their walk back to Jerusalem begins from where they are, standing on the Mount of Olives or the Mount called Olivet here, They head back to Jerusalem, which is, as the text tells us, a Sabbath day's journey, which equates to about a kilometer in our uh, metric system. A Sabbath day journey was established based on a tradition that that was flowing out of the Exodus story uh, when the people of God were marching through the wilderness and God had given them a, a tabernacle, the center place of their worship. On the Sabbath day, they were required to have no work, And so they limited all their activity. And so what they did was they measured out the furthest distance of their campsite from the tabernacle. And that equated again to about a kilometer. The furthest tents away from the tabernacle was about a kilometer as they gathered in the wilderness. So that became the way in which they determined a Sabbath day's journey. All that to say, they were probably walking for about 15 minutes back to Jerusalem And Luke then tells us how they began to occupy the next 10 days. After the ascension and then the coming of the Spirit of God, there is a 10-day period. What we see is a fascinating account of how the disciples are preparing. It's interesting, we saw last week in his gospel account, Luke, at the very end of chapter 24, he tells us that the people who had been saved, the followers of Jesus Christ, they stayed continually in the temple, blessing God, praising God. They had recognized that, that this was a new day that had dawned. There was new life given in Christ. There was a new hope to look forward to. All was not ending with the death of Jesus Christ. He had risen from the grave. And so the resurrection becomes the central, the linchpin of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the message that they will begin to declare to the world. Jesus has told them that they are to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria all the way to the outer edges of the earth, to the nations to declare the good news that there is life to be found in Jesus Christ. They're praising God, recognizing that this is a new day for them. Acts then follows it up here. What we see is this. Not only are they found constantly in the temple together praising God, but notice this. They all join together constantly in prayer. It's a healthy combination, in other words, of continuous praise in the temple and continuous prayer in the home. Their unity is being forged in a powerful way. And one of the things we see here is that their unity consists first, you can jot this down, of a common faith. Their unity is really brought together by their common belief in Jesus Christ. They gather in this upper room. You'll notice there, there's a list of the disciples. There's 11 names given, and we'll find out really quickly why that's the case. But in verse 14, it's so pivotal, it tells us these words, all these, notice this, with one accord. With one accord, they were gathering together, they were devoting themselves to prayer, but I want you just to focus in on that little phrase, with one accord. They were, in essence, of one mind. They were acting as one. All of this is a result of their common faith and belief in Jesus Christ. The gospel had bridged every gap. Ethnic gaps are being leveled by God. 
Gender gaps, you'll notice, are being leveled by God. It is bringing everybody together under this common banner of Jesus Christ. It's interesting, even the brothers of Jesus are there. Did you notice that in verse 14? All these were of one accord, and the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, his brothers who were formerly, as John tells us in John chapter 7, they were formerly skeptics of Jesus. They were formerly unbelievers in Jesus. But now they've come to the realization that Jesus Christ was exactly who he said he was. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that James, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, and the author of the book of James, experienced, he saw the resurrected Jesus They've all come to this place of embracing the Lord and verse 15 tells us that the church, imagine this, the church exists of 120 people. Make a mental note of that because what we see is kind of a a theology unfolding through the book of Acts and Luke wants to highlight for us numbers. You'll notice this, there are significant numbers that come up throughout the book of Acts and here's why, because Luke wants us to know that the progress of the gospel is being made evident to all. It is undeniable that the power of God is at work as a little group of individuals meets together, huddles together. Now what we will see is that it will begin to blossom and flourish and it will be able to move out and accomplish the mission that God has called it to. Here we see as they gather together with one accord that this is a fundamental key to unity in the church. Sadly, in the church, we often focus more on what we don't have in common with others. Isn't that true? We're prone in our flesh to identify things that make us different from people. Maybe that's ethnicity, maybe that's socioeconomic status, maybe that's the way somebody dresses or their preferences or their hobbies. Whatever it is, we have this knack, don't we, of identifying what makes people different rather than focusing on what makes us so uniquely the same. And scripture calls us to not focus on these differences but to focus on the one thing that makes us the same. The finished work of Jesus Christ. Our common faith in him. We see the early church makes this their primary focus. I love, by the way, that Jesus' family is mentioned here. I mean, just think about the significance of the fact that Jesus' family are now numbered amongst the group of believers. And just imagine that for a second. Can you imagine? I mean, Scripture tells us that, that Jesus had a mother and that he had half-brothers. And can you, ima- can, can you just imagine that life for a minute? I mean, can you imagine how many times they heard, why can't you just be like your brother Jesus? <laughs> Oy vey, right? <laughs> what an impossible standard. I love that because you want to know, you don't know why this is significant? Because I think there's a sense here in which God is making it clear by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, these people might have been inclined to feel like somehow they deserve some kind of preferential treatment in the body of Christ. Oh, there goes Jesus' brother. Oh, there's Jesus' mother. You know, you think of the Catholic Church that venerates Mary above all else. And what we see here is that they're lumped in, they're lumped into the body of Christ. And what's really significant is Jesus, he makes mention of this earlier in the Gospels. In fact, in Mark chapter 3, verse 31 through 35, just listen as I read it. Uh, On one occasion, it says this, his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called to him. Jesus is doing ministry and his family shows up at the door and they're calling for him. I think they're a little bit embarrassed by him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, Jesus, hey, your mother and your brothers, they're outside seeking you. 
And he answers them, this is so, so interesting, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said these words, profound words, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You see what he's doing right there? He's, he's, he's not giving them preferential treatment. In fact, he's establishing a new family, a new identity, and he's saying this, that everybody who believes in me has the opportunity of becoming my brother, my sister, my mother, my father. We are all one together. There is great unity that Jesus is establishing here. In fact, on another occasion, in Luke chapter 11, I think it'll be on the screen behind me here, of 27 and 20, listen to this. As he said these things, Jesus is teaching in a profound way, a woman the crowd raised her voice and said, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. Can you just get the sense there? I mean, your mother, what a blessed woman to have had a child like you. And here's what Jesus says. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. I mean, that is so profound. And you see, we're, the point is this, listen, we're all, mother of Jesus, brothers and sisters of Jesus, we're all in the same category. We're all sinners saved by the grace of God, amen? Every one of us needs the grace of God, and every one of us, and you're sitting here today, and if you don't know Jesus Christ, here's what you need to know. I don't know what your family life has looked like, I don't know what your background has been, but I know this, what God offers you is this, he offers you a new family relationship. One in which you can be adopted, as scriptures say, into his family. One in which you can be loved like you've never been loved before. Brothers and sisters, listen, this becomes common language in the New Testament in the church. I love that, don't you? We kind of, you know, we, we don't use that language very much, but I think it's profoundly theological and it reflects the sense of unity that God is wanting to establish. Unity is so important that Jesus specifically prayed for this in John chapter 17 as he prepared to leave his disciples. One of his greatest desires was that the church would be unified. His desire is that we be a church that celebrates our common faith in Jesus Christ. That strives, listen, here's what that means. Not only are we anchored in the gospel together, we're all a part of this family because of one thing. We have looked upon the cross. We have looked upon our Savior. We have seen that Jesus died for our sins, that he rose from the grave. We believe that he paid it all. We believe that he conquered sin and death. And we believe that in him, we have victory. That is the truth that unites us. Listen, but greater unity flows with greater doctrinal unity. As we strive together to dig into our common faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, what that produces in the body of Christ is strength and maturity. You see, we grow together as one family anchored in the truth of the gospel, strengthened by doctrinal conviction. And by the way, you say, well, what does this end up looking like in the family? It looks like this, greater, listen, relational unity. And Jesus made this so abundantly clear, right? He, he told us in John as well, this is how the world will know that you love me. How is that, church? That you love one another. So what preparation Jesus is producing here. He knows the church needs to function as a unit if they're going to impact the world. And so he pulls them together. He grants to them this great unity around a common faith. And secondly, around a common mission. 
There's nothing that unites people, listen, apart from the gospel, like a common mission and vision, right, where people are getting on board, where we're all moving in the same direction, and that's precisely what we see unfolding here. It tells us this, that all these, the apostles that are named, the the women, the mother and brothers of Jesus, the 120 that are now gathering together, it tells us this, they joined together constantly in prayer. The word together that's used here is really significant. It gives this sense of one accord that's established there already. But it goes beyond that. It seems to go beyond a mere assembly and activity and agreement about what they were praying for. Listen, here's what's important. They prayed with one mind or one purpose, with one passion. They prayed for their common goal, their common mission that Jesus, listen, had just handed to them. They, they understood now, more than they ever had before, what their objective was to be as they encountered the world around them. They understood the importance of their mission. They understood the promise of Jesus to build his church. And all of this was beginning to move about in their mind and to fashion for them a firm footing They understood that they were to be a witness first to Israel and then to the world. They understood the importance and value of being together and being called out by God and to call out to God. Prayer is preparation for the mission. That is so evident in this text. Why? Why? You think about that. Like, Why does prayer signify preparation for the mission? Why does prayer for us signify preparation for the very same mission that God has sent it on? One, because, listen, it reflects trust and hope in the God who has called us. Your prayers are a declaration, listen, of how much you trust God. It's a declaration that you can't do it on your own and it is an expression of dependence upon God. It's, it's a recognition, God, I can't do this on my own. Lord, apart from you, I can do nothing. And so if you don't help, if you don't provide, if you don't move, nothing will be possible. But more than that, look, not just trust, but hope. Do you realize that every time you pray, you're expressing hope in God? Think about that. Every time you pray, what you're saying is this, that there is a God who exists, there is a God who I believe knows me, there is a God who I believe loves me, there is a God who I believe cares for me, and there is a God who I believe will answer me. All of that, listen, is hope. I am hoping that this God who who has expressed and revealed himself to me is going to be faithful, is going to be true to who he is. And so here they gather as a declaration not only of their trust and their dependence, but of their hope. And I just want to encourage you, we we pray and we do the same thing, whether we recognize it or not, but maybe that even shapes the way in which you pray. And I love the phrase that's used here. Did you catch that? They're all with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. This was something that was a constant. It was becoming a a characteristic of the early church. Prayer was at the ground level for success and for unity. As they understood their mission, they believed that the most important thing they could do to prepare was to gather, I love this, in praise and in prayer. Continually in the temple, continually devoting themselves to prayer with one another. What a reminder for us of what is truly necessary and important. 
We dare not hope or trust in our own efforts, and so we devote ourselves in the same way to persistent prayer, and I love this, we do this together. Prayer is not a solo sport. It's not an individual sport. Prayer is intended by God to be both, yes, individual, but to corporate. It is something we are to gather and to, to do together, and one of the reasons is because of the unity that it forges amongst God's people as we pour out our hearts to God. I love, you know, um, Philip mentioned, first of all, don't you love that? We bi- we're bigging up God. I think we should embrace that terminology, right? We'll, we'll take that Jamaican flavor here, right? We, we want to exalt Jesus Christ. And, and, you know, one of the things we, we have been praying about even as elders and one of the things we desire to make a prominent in our church is praise and prayer. You say, well, why do we do this? Is this another night where we just add something into the life of our church? No, it's not. This is theologically grounded. This is what the early church was founded upon. And so, you know, when we gather, you know, you have the magnet. I got this magnet right here. There's some on the back table. I want to encourage you. Look, what we're doing here is significant for the health of our church, for the unity of our church, and for the expansion of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. We gather together, not just for the sake of hanging out. We gather to exalt the name of Jesus Christ for what he's done, amen? And we gather to call upon the name of our Lord because we believe that if we don't, then all of this is in vain, all of this is worthless because we don't have the sufficiency or the strength within our, we don't have the wisdom. I'm I'm not smart enough, are you? God is. And so we rally together and we we forge unity in our hearts together and we plead to our God together. We call upon the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, and we say, God, in the same way that you breathe life into us, that you're working in power by your spirit within us, God, we want to see you do more in us and out to to the world. So I just just want to encourage you, you know, this is not a guilt trip and there's no judgment if you don't come to praise and prayer. This is a passionate plea for you to consider the importance of what we're doing on those nights. I understand it's a sacrifice sometimes, but can I just tell you, I believe with all my heart it is a sacrifice worth, worth making. vitally important for the health of the church and we see that being established right out the gate. It's time to unite and and look, if we look at the world today and we see enough fragmentation in the church, uh, both universal and local sometimes, one of the things we need to embrace is this. We need to fight for unity, amen? We need to strive for greater unity and here we see a great example of how that happens. Secondly, notice this in their preparation, it's time to remember. It's time to remember Again, we'll just pick up a verse 15. It says, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And here's what Peter said. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, a kadama, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. The joy of this unified group is instantly tempered by a sad reflection upon an individual who was given all of the blessings and privileges of being in close proximity to Jesus Christ. 
The tragic hypocrisy and suicide of Judas is being highlighted to the church that is gathered. You'll notice here too that we see Peter stepping up and taking charge, giving leadership over this small embryonic church. And as Peter begins to speak, one of the very first things he wants the church to do is think back for a moment. Let's reflect for a second. Let's remember how this all happened and and what God would want us to do and be right now. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. It's time to remember first what God said. What God said. And I love this because Peter begins his appeal by appealing to Scripture. In those days... Excuse me, verse 16, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, he says to them, and this is so amazing, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Isn't that incredible? Do you know what he's saying here? He's saying, first of all, all of scripture is breathed out by the mouth of God. And so hundreds of years ago, the Spirit of God spoke through David. The Spirit of God was working to produce Scripture, Scripture that pointed to this future time, to this future day even, to this future event. It's a powerful reminder, listen, of the sufficiency of Scripture that we hold in our hands. All of it is revealed to us by God. His spirit has worked through the prophets to produce for us an inerrant, infallible, perfect word. One that comes with authority and one that comes with power. And I think it's so critical to understand what great leadership of Peter here, isn't it? Peter doesn't begin by leading with his opinion. Uh, church, I've got an idea. I think this is what we might want to consider or do. He stands up with conviction and he declares the truth of the word of God. The church's job is not to stand and declare human opinion. It is to declare the word of God. And what he does is so significant because not only does he want to draw them back to what has been written by the Spirit of God through David, what he's intending to produce through that, listen, is not only a source of encouragement that God had this all planned out, and in that and through that, he's trying to establish for them hope. He's saying, look, don't you guys understand? Like, God thought of this, right? God has planned this a long time ago. He revealed that this would even happen, Isn't that awesome? It feels like everything's falling apart. It feels like we've got this small number with this great mission, but we know this. We know the God who is in absolute sovereign control of all things. He has providentially orchestrated and planned even this moment in time. The confidence and the courage that that would instill, that it would breathe into this small group of faithful followers of Jesus Christ is immense. But what he does here is what he essentially does. He says the warrant for replacing Judas is found in the Old Testament scriptures. We need to remember that Jesus had opened their minds to understand the scriptures. In fact, I love this story. Flip back in your Bibles. Keep your finger in Acts and flip back to Luke chapter 24. Remember here, Luke is the same author that wrote the book of Acts. It's fascinating because at the very 
end of the Gospel of Luke, we have this account, this famous account, this walking on the road to Emmaus, and there are these two disciples who are walking along the road, and, and, and look, the death of Jesus Christ has just happened. This is the big public affair. Everybody understands that this Jesus figure has just been crucified. He's yet to be raised, or, he, or yet, excuse me, he's, not, many people don't understand that he's been raised. And so as these disciples kind of walk by, they're discussing all of these things that have taken place, and instantly there's a figure who begins to walk with them, and it's Jesus. And as Jesus walks along, we'll just pick up at Luke verses, um, let's go to 24, verse 24. It says, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, this is Jesus now talking to them about the empty tomb, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, as he walked along, he began to rail off scripture after scripture and place after place in the Old Testament scriptures and to show them, see here, see here, see here. All of this was pointing towards me. It was all pointing towards this event. It was all pointing towards my suffering and my impending resurrection and my exaltation to glory. But you missed it. He's showing them, do you get the sense? He's showing them things that they've never seen before in the scriptures. He's bringing them to life for them. And look down to verse 32, just drop down. As Jesus is revealing this, listen to what they said, this is awesome. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Don't you see here? The power of God is working in the hearts of these people to unfold the meaning of the text to them. I love this, drop down to verse 45. Then he opened their minds, if that's not clear enough for us to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with the power from on high. Since the resurrection, the disciples, the followers of Jesus Christ had begun to have a new grasp of how the Old Testament foretold the sufferings and the glory, the rejection and the reign of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They were beginning to see that the central figure in all of scriptures has always been Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon, the famous A prince of preachers, as he was called, was once speaking to some pastors about a sermon and about the importance of proclaiming Christ in all the scriptures. And Spurgeon said this to these young students. He said, you remember the story of the old minister who heard a sermon by a young man. And when he was asked by the preacher what he thought of it, he was rather slow to answer But at last he said, if I must tell you, I did not like it at all. There was no Christ in your sermon. No, answered the young man. 
because I did not see that Christ was in the text. Oh, said the old minister, but do you not know that from every little town and village and tiny hamlet in England, there is a road leading to London? Whenever I get a hold of a text, I say to myself, there is a road from here to Jesus Christ, and I mean to keep on his track till I get to him. Well, said the young man, but suppose you are preaching from a text that says nothing about Christ. Then I will go over hedge and ditch, but I will get at him. Don't you love that? Every text of scripture is somehow, listen, Christ may not be in every text, but Christ, you can get to Christ from every text. So much of scripture and and our study of scripture needs to be about this concept. And maybe, you know, for some of us, we read the Bible as if we're just ticking a box or we read it just to find information or maybe we read it to win an argument. We see it as a historical book simply to be read as just that. The Bible is a book about Jesus Christ. And while it's easy to read and to tick a box, listen, reading to understand and see Jesus is something very different. Reading to find the truth of Jesus Christ embedded in every part of scripture, reading so that it points us to his glory, reading so that as, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter three that we might see the glory of Jesus Christ, the putific vision as it was called in the olden days, as we might see Christ in all of his majesty and his glory, that is the one thing, if it can capture our hearts, listen, it will begin to transform us. You wonder, you say, I read the Bible but I'm not being transformed. Read it to see Jesus Christ. Read it with eyes that are longing to see Jesus Christ. May there never be a time where you don't quote the words of Psalm 119.18. Open my eyes that I may behold the wonderful truths in your law. May there be a sense in which you approach scripture saying, not I have this figured out, but God show me more of you. Listen, this is the key to growing in Christ as you read the scriptures. The desire of your heart, the longing of your heart, the plea of your heart is, God, I want to see Christ. I want to see him in all of his glory. I want to be transformed by, from one degree of glory to the next. So, Father, let me see your son. Peter goes on to read from Psalm 69, and then he'll touch upon a verse from Psalm 109. And he's highlighting, notice this next, what Judas did. It's time to remember what God said, but it's also time to remember what Judas did. This is one of the most extended sections on Judas in the New Testament, and it gives us some very graphic and gruesome detail, doesn't it, about what happened to this man who is so close to Jesus and yet so far from Jesus. It says here concerning Jesus, Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. We're familiar with the story. We know how he marched through the garden during that dark night and he walked up to Jesus, followed by a band of soldiers, and he kissed Jesus on the cheek, a sign of friendship and affection, but truly the greatest, what has become known as the greatest sign of betrayal. Notice what it says here, verse 17, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Listen, there was a sadness to this. 
this, this is painful to reflect upon and to remember. This is, listen, nobody, when they thought of Judas before his betrayal, nobody thought Judas was capable of doing what he did. Nobody pinpointed Judas as the man who was going to betray the Savior. They all looked at themselves and said, is it me, Lord? Is it me, Lord? Is it me, Lord? Nobody saw it coming. There's a sense in which that's intended to shock us. In fact, a, a phrase that's been used often flowing out of John 15 when Jesus talks about the vine and the branches that are growing, are growing out of it, this all points us that the branches that are lopped off, the ones that are there and they appear to be growing leaves and fruit, they appear that way, but when you get close, you see there is no fruit, there are no leaves, they're worthless, they're only to be chopped, up, chopped off the vine and thrown into the fire. This is where we get the term the Judas branch. Because that's exactly what Judas was. He looked like he was attached, but it was all superficial. The fruit was superficial. You want to know why? Because Judas was in it for himself. Judas approached Jesus, and this is the danger. Listen, the danger is that we do the same thing. We approach Jesus for what he can do for us instead, listen, of what he has done for us. Judas... The sad reality that he could be so close and yet so far is intended, I believe, to the early church and to all those who would read this in succeeding generations, including us, is this. Do not be like Judas. Some people will often say, well, was Judas saved and did he lose his salvation? The scriptures say no. He is a son of perdition. He looked the part. This is the, this is the, this is the reality. He, he wasn't saved and he lost his salvation. He was never saved in the first place. It's possible to look the part, church. It's possible to play the game. It's possible to put on a mask. It's possible to walk into church every Sunday with a smile on your face, saying Christianese, singing Christian songs, and greeting people as brother and blessed, and yet not really be saved. And it's a terrifying reality. So Peter, he, he looks at the Psalms, and, and he says, this is what... God talked about there was always going to be one who looked the part but was not really a part and he was going to be the one who was guilty of betraying the Savior. And he goes on to explain a little bit about the fate of Judas. And we, we know what happened, right? Judas is offered 30 pieces of silver. He has a sense of remorse after he's committed his treachery. He, he goes back into the high priest, into the temple, and he throws the money back at them. I made a mistake. I feel remorse. How could I do what I did? But look at his remorse did not lead to genuine repentance. And so what does he do? Well, first you should note this. Um, I don't believe he does this. I believe the high priests now have his money, but they don't want to keep the blood money. Think of the hypocrisy in that. We can't keep this money. This money was used to murder somebody, even though we sanctioned it. So what do they do? They take the money and look what they do. This man acquired a field that was required with his money. With the reward, don't you love this? Of his wickedness. And then here's the idea here. At some point he found a tree likely hanging or, or, or over a cliff and he went to hang himself and somewhere along the line maybe it was the rope or the branch that snapped. Either way he fell to his death upon the rocks below and the picture is so graphic here. He burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Can you believe that's in the Bible? Say, that's nasty. Why, Why is that in the Bible? Listen, because the physical fate of Judas... 
is to be a powerful picture of the spiritual fate of Judas. Judas is utterly destroyed in the physical sense. But in an even greater way, listen, this is so, this is so terrifying. The reality is Judas spends an eternity getting what he wants apart from the one true and living God. He spends his existence, listen, in utter and total spiritual destruction. There's no hope. He had his chance. Beware, remorse is not the same thing as repentance. There was a worldly sorrow, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, that does not lead to repentance. Looks like it for a while. There's a sense of guilt and shame. But it doesn't lead to true repentance. It doesn't produce any change. There is no lasting progress in sanctification, looking more like Jesus. But there is a godly sorrow that does lead to repentance, and its fruit is evident It is clear, there is genuine brokenness, there is absolute change, a turning and walking in the other direction, a willingness to suffer the consequences for the actions. Fate of Judas warns us, and it warns us this morning, if you listen, if you are on the path of Judas, I beg you, stop where you are. Stop playing the game. Stop pretending. Do what Judas couldn't do. Fall on your face and acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of a savior. Acknowledge that God's grace is greater than all of your sin. Could you imagine if Judas had done that? What a story of grace that could have been told, but instead in his stubbornness, he willfully rejected the grace of God that doesn't have to be you today. God invites you, come and taste, see that my love and grace is good. The final thing we see unfolding here is that it's time to act. What becomes clear is that Judas' fate was determined. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. In other words, there's a sense in which God never wants us to forget. He never wanted the people of Israel or the people of God to forget what became of Judas. And understanding that God had fulfilled the scriptures regarding Judas, Peter now recognizes that God's plan was to have another take his place. There is an aspect of scripture that is yet to be fulfilled, that was intended to be fulfilled in this moment, on this day, predicted in Psalm 109, verse 8. That's what he quotes here. It says this, and let another take his place. Peter applies this psalm directly to this situation. So Peter begins the process of finding a suitable replacement for Judas, of adding a 12th apostle. And it's fascinating because you can look at this, and I don't know if you've ever asked this question, like why do they have to add a 12th apostle? Why not just stick with 11, right? Why was this determined beforehand? Why must this be fulfilled? Why 12? Well, for one thing, it's to show there's great continuity with what God is doing in Israel and for Israel and through Israel. How many tribes were there of Jacob, Israel? Twelve. 
There's a sense in which God is saying, look, the, the work here, what I've promised to do in Israel and through Israel and for Israel is incomplete. We only have 11. We need 12 to rightly reflect and identify with the nation of Israel. And what you have to see here is this, while it shows continuity with the mission of Israel, because the mission of Israel, listen, was always not only for themselves, but for the nations. They were to be a light for the nations. They failed at that task. And God is saying, listen, I'm, first of all, there is still hope for Israel. Because they are to go first to Israel. God is saying, look, the mission is not over. That's what he's trying to establish in our minds. There's hope that, there, that the fulfillment of the mission is still going to happen. Success is guaranteed, but let's get right back to the basics. Let's continue to lay the foundation. We need 12. This has always been the plan. And by the way, it's not just for the present reality that the gospel will now go forth from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. There is a future reality that comes into play here. In fact, we know this from the Gospels, Luke in particular, Luke 22, verses 28 through 30 says this, you are those, this is Jesus speaking, who have stayed with me in my trials. He's speaking to his disciples. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Matthew 19, 28 says essentially the same thing. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, I want you to see this, there's a future aspect to this. This is to come, Jesus is saying, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. This is talking about his physical return to the earth where he rules and reigns. You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So you see, Jesus has made guarantees and promises about 12 thrones thrones and 12 individuals who will rule over, tw- over the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. And so to fulfill his promise, God says 12, not 11. And God has providentially set everything up to be a witness to the hope of Israel. And so as this unfolds, what you need to see too is this, the time to act is here. They're trying to establish what God has called them to. And we get here a greater understanding of apostleship. And there's so much confusion about apostleship and what it is. Is it an office? Is it a a gift? And this will begin to uh, really set the stage for how we understand apostleship. We find here that there is some criteria for becoming a true apostle. And the requirements are given here, beginning in verse 21, so let's read it together. It says this, so one of the men who accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the, t- from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you Lord... Who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with them, or with the eleven apostles. Here we see the requirements that are given for apostleship, and Notice this first, it would have to be somebody who had witnessed the Lord's entire earthly ministry from its inception at the baptism of John until 
the culminating ascension that took place only moments ago for them. Some have suggested, by the way, that the Apostle Paul is the 12th Apostle and that, that somehow they made a mistake here. We have no indication that the Spirit of God was not moving, that this was not the right decision. In fact, what we see is the Apostle Paul never identifies himself fully as one of the 12 Apostles. He says, in fact, that he is one who is untimely born. He is a different kind of Apostle. He has almost, in one sense, a different mission than these. Here, the primary objective for these 12 will be the mission to Israel. Primarily, Paul picks up in chapter 12 and what he establishes is that he is an apostle to who? To the Gentiles. So Paul, by his own admission, declares that he is not one of the 12. That's just for free. That's coming later though. Part of what you must see here is that these apostles will be a witness to Israel. That's why the 12, that's why the hope is being reestablished. Notice this, though, that the second requirement, not only do they have to experience, do they have to see, do they have to be a part of, in a sense, the ministry of Jesus from its beginning to end, they had to, in particular, be a witness to the resurrection. They, they had to be numbered amongst those who had seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. One whom Jesus had appeared to during this 40 days. And you say, well, why is that significant? They, they needed to be a personal eyewitness because they needed to have credibility. Isn't that true? A new movement is starting here. And so Jesus wants to select people who are going to be able to give this movement credibility. This isn't some dream. This isn't some vision that happened. This is based on concrete fact. These people saw Jesus Christ. You say, why is that important to have this kind of credibility if you're going to be an apostle? Because you're going to need courage. Every one of the apostles would leave from Jerusalem and they begin to declare the resurrection of Jesus Christ and every one of them would face immense opposition, incredible persecution, all but John himself would be martyred for the faith that we know of and John was exiled to the island of Patmos where he would spend the remainder of his days. So let me just ask you this. Who is willing to die like that at the beginning of a movement if they're not utterly convinced about the truth of what they're declaring? One of the greatest apologetics for the gospel is the fact that every one of these who claim to see Jesus Christ went to their grave without budging one inch. And this ought to give us great confidence in the faith. Because listen, the apostles, Ephesians tells us this, Ephesians 2.20 tells us that the church would be built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. God is going to use them in a unique way to build the foundation upon which the church would then begin to grow. So this is so essential that we understand as the book of Acts unfolds, we're going to see the importance of the apostles and how they're laying this foundation, but what credibility and what courage they must have. It's going to get hard. And it's interesting here, notice this, there are two men put forward, why two? Here's what I believe, because they're the only two who meet the requirements. This is it, this is all we have. These are the only ones who have seen all that we have seen and who have experienced the resurrection. They've been there from the beginning. But there's one more requirement to be met. Notice this, the third and final requirement for one of these 12 apostles. You had to be chosen by Jesus himself. 
You had to be specifically chosen by Jesus. Every one of the apostles had been chosen, handpicked by Jesus up to this point. And you notice how this unfolds, because where's Jesus? Jesus is in heaven. So what do they do? Notice this. They put forward to, verse 23, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias, and they prayed. And here it is, notice this. They said, you, Lord, who's that? Who do they call Lord? Jesus. You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two, notice this, you have chosen. This isn't a vote, right? We're not voting an apostle in here. We're looking for Jesus Christ himself to identify the one he has chosen. Who's gonna take the place of Judas? And look at this sad note again, the one who turned aside to go to his own place. He could have had a place with Jesus instead. He chose his own place. Everybody who goes to hell, listen, ultimately chooses that. So here's how they identify the one whom Jesus has chosen. Notice this verse 26, and they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Casting lots was a common way of determining God's will in the Old Testament. And here's what I want you to notice. This is the very last time casting lots is ever mentioned prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit. That's significant. By the way, this is not a model. Not not everything in Acts is a model for us to follow. Uh, We are not to cast lots in making major decisions in life. Essentially what they did was they drew straws or they rolled dice. And again, a common way that God had given them, even in the Old Testament, of determining God's will, the way in which they believed God was working through his spirit. And he made it very clear here that Matthias was chosen. And so he was added to the 11, bringing completion, setting the stage. The preparation has been accomplished. And now They wait patiently for the coming presence and power of the Spirit of God. The church is prepared. They unite around a common faith and mission. They join constantly in prayer and praise, forging that unity, forging that common vision and goal, recalling what God had brought them through and what he's bringing them to. They remembered God's word, the betrayal of Judas. And they longed to be a faithful people led by the scriptures as genuine, true followers of Jesus Christ. And they act obeying the scriptures. Witnesses ready to proclaim The only thing they lack now is the promised Holy Spirit. But get ready. The promise is here and ready to be unleashed upon the church.